And when you hear that music, it can only be one individual coming on the show. Just one person that I have known for the last 25 years that could fulfill that music. The one, the only, the Sarge, Nicholas J. Hines. Hoorah, Nick! Love it. Love it. I'm glad to get you on finally on the podcast. I mean, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, We've been doing, I've been doing a series with handicappers about their own handicapping angles or their favorite plays, the the way to play the races. I've had Ella Starr, Michael Baychuk, you. I'm going to bring on a number of other people. But this is the interview that I've been waiting to do. The man. All right, Nicholas. (laughs) We've been we've known each other a long time, brother. Twenty five years ago, you and I had a chance to sit at that old Papachino's down at Del Mar, and I think we closed the joint and then some, uh, having pizza out there. I think we were out till midnight, weren't we, that night? Just sitting, yeah. shooting the, the breeze. You, you know, know, we were it, both young. It, it, no doubt, uh, no doubt, those times are are times that we cherish and. I think in light of what's happening with this whole pandemic, I think once we kind of get back to normalcy, I think we'll take even a greater appreciation for it. But uh, I, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I, I will call it an honor. I must say that I won't take note of the fact that I wasn't the first in line. But the fact that I'm, <laughs> but the part, the fact that I'm, I'm in the lineup means uh, it means something to me, and I appreciate that, brother. Well, you're going to be the encore, buddy. Hoorah. <laughs> I met you when you were working for Bob Hess Jr. You were a uh, you were the assistant to Bob Hess Jr. at Del Mar during all those training titles that Hess and you and the Sormo won over there. Um, and then you went out on your own, and uh, you and I had some fun with some of our own horses. Uh, we did some good, and. Uh, you know, so I, I feel like I've, you know, I've had, you know, I've had a, a lot to do in your life as you have had in mine, uh, including, including knowing Michelle, your lovely wife, uh, when she was working for the Digest and having an opportunity to see you two hit it off and have a wonderful life together and having a wonderful kid in the cash, uh, a little boy. Uh, so. You could say we've been tied into this game and in life pretty much for the last 25 years. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, I, I, again, I, I think when you, you take a look back and, and, and you ask yourself, would you change things, and absolutely not. And the one thing I can appreciate, you know, you and I, obviously, I think in, in more recent years, I think we've been, you know, pretty parallel, um, you know, as far as philosophies and whatnot, you know, obviously – being a clocker and trade that you are and a handicapper and, and what I do in the bloodstock world, you know, having trained horses. But what I, what I did appreciate back when we did work directly together uh, with you being a clocker and, and I as a trainer, um, you know, I, I'll sit here today and, and I'll say it point blank that, and I'm not blowing smoke, but as far as from a clocker perspective, you far and away are number one. And that comes from, a sense that you have an understanding for, for horse characteristics and, and body English. And, and that's one thing that I think that it's just like being a bloodstock agent for me personally. Um, I think that the clocker and you as a clocker 
for me as a bloodstock agent, I think far and away I have an advantage over several because the fact that they never trained horses, they're not horsemen. I mean, they're, they're looking at it from a, a pedigree standpoint and they can learn the trade. But I think as a clocker, the one thing I appreciated about you is the fact that you gave us kind of a, a better feeling and a pronunciation of how horses would speak. And I think as far as their, their English and how they moved and their characteristics. And I think as a handicapper, I mean, you can, you can handicap paper, but the visual aspect, I think, is what you bring to the table that nobody else does. Well, I, I learned a lot also listening to you, Nick. Um, you know, I learned a lot about horses' injuries and, and how they get hurt. And, you know, I, I remember when we had a filly named Conchettina. You and I, we bought her together for 10000 and we knew she could run, and she fractured a tibia on us. And I still remember the work that she fractured the tibia on. And I remember your words was, there's something wrong. I'm not sure what it is. I'm going to wait a few days. You had a feeling. You had a, you had a, 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 a you kind of read her without seeing an x-ray. And sure enough, you know, five days later, you know, you told me, I can't tell right now. Does that, I'll never forget you saying to me, Bruno, I got to wait seven days and then I got to re-exit Ray or because the, the, the tibia does not show immediately on x-rays if we do it today. Right. I never forgot that. And, yeah. and sure enough, she, she fractured a tibia. You retired as a trainer. And uh, I think Jeff Mullins got her and Bobby Troger. And actually, she ran on the Raw Ayers' name first time out and won, which right. is another funny story in itself. Because he had never seen a horse. Bobby Troger had trained her. I had been seeing the Philly train every day. Raw Ayers knew nothing. He was hung over that morning, uh, you know, that afternoon at Santa Anita. Barely could cinch up the, the, the girth on her. And I remember one of the owners going up to him and saying, do you think we can win today? And he said, I think you'll need one. And I had to explain to the owner that the kid had never seen a horse until he cinched up that girth. <laughs> you know yeah so right and you know uh, so and and i you know we you and i got some wonderful stories and we're going to go through a couple of them but i wanted to talk to you let's talk about handicapping when when we're in, in our normal normal not this new normal we get to see you all the time on tvg um we haven't had that opportunity am i correct right no it's been uh I was looking at the calendar today, and I, I'm just trying to figure out where the month of April went. But the last time uh, you saw my pretty face on, on TVG was, I think, right around March 8th. So I, uh, I took that trip to the, uh, the OBS sale, which I think in retrospect, I have no regrets. But, you know, that's at the point in which they kind of shut down the country. So the last time I was on, yeah, it was right around early March. And. You know, we've been kind of relegated to the tracks we've been able to handicap and, and wager on, and especially on days like today. I mean, you're dealing with Will Rogers, you're dealing with Bonner Park, and uh, they aren't easy, I can tell you that. No, they're cheap horses. Cheap yeah. horses don't withhold their form, and yeah. that's the beauty about it. I watched – it's funny because Amy Kearns does uh, our Will Roger down. She loves Will Rogers. Huh. She's a good handicapper. She does all our handicapping at Will Rogers. And I told her, I wrote her after the, I think it was the sixth race. I said, like, hey, you got to love Will Rogers. The eight wins the race, pays, I think, $15 and walks out of the, out of the uh, winner's circle, dead lame on the right front. You know? Oh, boy. Yeah. But, but that's, just, that's just because they run horses that 
and basically done. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I tend to – I don't know if I can agree with that, but I will tell you that I think they get – it's like life, for example. I think people end up in certain places because that's what they are. That's kind of what they are, unfortunately. I mean, I, I've seen horses there that that seem to have the, the utmost in talent and are sound, but they just they – don't, they don't achieve. They don't want to overachieve. And that right. – for example, and I don't like to call out anyone, but – Andy Serling on uh, social media, you know, he, he was preaching about Tacitus the other day. I, you know, <laughs> horses, horses like Tacitus, I think I don't even need to tell you, and I'm sure you probably don't need to tell me, but horses like Tacitus, they will continue by and large, take money on an every race basis and continue to underachieve. That's what he is. That's his mentality. That's who he is. Well, my, my tweet after the Oakland handicap was it the Oakland handicap right. that he ran in. Right. Yeah, I wrote down Tacitus. He doesn't disappoint. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it was a yeah. very sarcastic because I just thought, what's he doing at two to one? You know, I mean, when but when is this gonna happen? But that's where that's where as a handicapper, and that's that's my point. Going back to that tweet from from Andy Serling, I mean, haven't we seen enough? Uh, of, of, I mean, I, I go back to the Kentucky Derby last year. And, and the one thing that's frustrating, because you look at Tassinus as far as pound-for-pound pound talent, I can assure you that if you were to match his talent up with, uh, you know, Tom's the top, whomever handicapped, and believe me, I, I love him. But as far as talent, who's to say Tassinus isn't the most talented of the group? He just doesn't have the, the, the mental uh, capacity. And you see that a lot in the, in the tappet line. For example, you go back to when Mohamed, uh, when he raced in the Florida Derby, look, I, I was kind of on the fence. I wasn't like, oh, no, you know, Nyquist is going to drill him. But if I had to vote at the time, I said, you know, look, let's see if Mohamed can take a punch. Well, when he took that TKO that day, he was never the same horse. Tacitus is something in that line, the tappet line, that I've seen through and through there's a weakness there. And it's unfortunate because they have all of the other characteristics to be game changers. So can, can I, can I, can I throw my two cents in on Tappets? Yeah. Fire it. He passes along a trait of attention deficit disorder. There you go. All of his horses have ADD. They seem, they get unfocused. They don't, they're beautiful bodied athletic animals. Yeah. But they have that ADD bug in them that doesn't allow them to focus for. They they have the on 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 a on a large. If you want to really put it down in kind of a, a a cliche, they have the attention span of a gnat. Right, right. And, well, that's just, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and I think with him, uh, you know, he showed me a couple of times, and if people wanted to blame Jose, and they did this, he did that. No, I own the Tappet. I had Ronan Dax. I know exactly what a Tappet is. And if I knew now, if I knew then what I know now, would have handled him completely different. Because he had all the talent in the world, but brain-wise, he was like a six-year-old all the time. Right. You know, and I think that's the problem with a lot of these Tappets. Um, and you can, you know, and, and here's another great part, Nick. You being, uh, having been a former trainer... You had to get in horses' heads. Do you find yourself falling back as a handicapper and going, I got this horse figured out. I know what he is. 
Yeah, I, I, I try to. Um, you know, unfortunately, I, I think what we're what we're dealing with in today's generation of a horse trainer, and you know, I, I'm not again, I'm not about to call out particular trainers, but um, you know, I, again, for the the advent of the super trainer, for example, I mean, we've got two trainers that um, were arrested and essentially are waiting you know, to hear their cases with Navarro and service. But if you think about Baffert, for example, and not mentioning him in that same breath, but people are starting to kind of point uh, fingers in that direction. Um, but the one thing about Baffert, his style of training, whether it be his horses, when they go to race, they're battle tested. And that's the difference of, say, for example, his technique and I can see some of those characteristics in the way Brad Cox trains. Um, he tends to be a bit harder on them. Um, whereas with the Richard Baltuses of the world or the Phil D'Amato's, when it comes that time in which they have to lock up in battle, and that's why I don't think a lot of these trainers um, can get a, a grade one dirt horse. Um, I think training turf horses is through and through. I think it's easier. I just think it's easier. Yeah, very much. Yeah, so. and I, yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think that um, to get them battle tested is easier as well because you're not really concentrating much, as much on speed as you are stamina. Um, I think the objective with a turf horse is to obviously learn what their strong suit is. I mean, every turf horse, good turf horse, has to have a move. So when you go back to trying to handicap a race, boy, it, it's really hard to trust, right? I, I think that it's a matter of knowing the personality of that trainer. And if you can get, try to get in their head and they're, what they're thinking for me personally, knowing that I've been, it's hard to believe, but I've been 13 years removed since training. Um, it's getting harder and harder because the, the, the trainers that you see today aren't the horsemen that we knew of yesterday. I remember one day walking, uh, I got to be friendly with Eddie Gregson and it must've been around 1991, 92, and I'm walking back with him after a workout on one of his horses. And he looked at me and he said, Bruno, I can do without Lasix what most trainers can do with. And I thought that was very, very interesting comment. And what he meant that is that a good horseman knows to get around and to be able to do the same things without Lasix. Now, when I wrote my book in 2005 in the Lasix section, uh, you and I, uh, I, I quoted you a couple of times on a discussion we've had, and you had a very interesting mentality about it, that all your horses didn't deserve, didn't really need to have Lasix. But how did you put it? Something to the effect, better to something or repent. Uh, better to use or rep uh, yeah, and, instead of repent. In other words, if I can use it and not have to worry about the horse bleeding, uh, in a workout, why not? And um, what is your thoughts about Lasix now? Now that you've been 13 years removed, you use Lasix as a trainer. Um, I, I'm going to look in my book while I get your answer, and I'll get the exact quote you gave me. But um, what is your thoughts about Lasix? You didn't work a lot, a, a number of, of your horses on Lasix. No, I, I did not. I. I think the the idea, I mean, th there's no secret that when you give a horse Lasix, they, they, they tend to dehydrate if you're not careful. And I think from a 
let's put it from a feed perspective as far as nutritional standpoint. I mean, any, anytime you're, you're putting any type of a, a medication in your body, there, there are going to be consequences uh, unless, of course, you were to give something to help counteract that. I mean, I mean, for example, um, let's take women, for example, uh, that, that would take Lasix. And at the, at the elderly stage of their life, they would get osteoporosis. There's no coincidence in that. So I think with, with horses in general, um, I think you, you would give them Lasix as far as a workout pattern. I mean, obviously, legally, you can only give Lasix if you have a documented bleeder. Even if a horse, like, for example, if a horse were to bleed just a trace on uh, uh, an endoscope and say, for example, they bled just a trace, who's to say how much they, they bled internally? Because you can only get the scope down so far when you scope a horse. So a trace could be more than you would think. I mean, I've had horses that actually bled externally that when you scope them, they didn't bleed that bad. Then I've had other horses that bled out of the sinuses that people go, oh, that horse is a bleeder. No, he's not a bleeder. He just popped a sinus. So going back to Lasix, no. At, when I trained, I felt that working horses on Lasix every single week was detrimental. I felt that the horses uh, got lethargic. Um, I think Lasix for workouts are key in company drills and gait workouts. And at times, stamina-induced workouts. Like when you're working a horse three-quarters or seven-eighths. And the comment you made in the book was it's better to prepare and prevent as opposed to repair and repent. Only Nicholas J. Hines could come up with that one. Yeah, well, preventative medicine is, you know, what can you say? You know, and especially, it was interesting. I, I, don't, I don't think you saw my tweet, but it was probably about a week and a half ago. And uh, there was a, a tweet, and it was pertaining to Lasix. And there was a little clip there from, was it 1990 that Unbridled won the Derby that year? Was it 1990? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you remember Summer Squall, all right, Summer Squall was a horse that did not race on Lasix as a two-year-old. But in his final, I guess his final race or his, his first workout as a three-year-old, he bled profusely. So he was one of five horses in the Derby that year to go on Lasix or be on Lasix. Unbridled was a horse that was on Lasix. If you recall in New York, because remember Summer Squall came back and won the Preakness he did not race in the Belmont. He didn't race in the Belmont. Good, Bel no Lasix. Correct, correct. And you remember, Unbridled ended up running fourth, and the winner that year was Go and Go for Dermot Wells. So when you, you kind of reflect on the whole Lasix situation, um, if it weren't for, and I think Summer Squall, I'd consider him above average stallion. And I, I think from a, on the female line, I think he did a lot, you know, as a broodmare sire. But he was more Philly looking too. He was. He was. He was definitely feminine. But my point, though, as I like to say, he's metrosexual. But the point that, I, that I'm getting at <laughs> is that when you talk about Lasix, um, like any other, any other drug, I, I think that we found that th these things just get abused. And, and I, you know, I, I find it interesting. There was a horse that Clement ran over the weekend. You know, Clement was one of those non-Lasix guys. But there was a horse that won first time out without Lasix, came back second time, with Lasix, and I'm thinking, hmm, interesting, because I know a lot of trainers, like I as a former trainer, after key workouts and after every single race, I'd make sure these horses were scoped. I mean, why, why take a chance? Because, you know, horses are susceptible to infection, and, 
you know, plus you, you, you don't get to understand them. You need to, you need to do what you have to do to understand these horses better. And interesting comment that you made about Gregson um, in reference to, you know, stopping a horse uh, from bleeding. And a lot of that comes in, in just sheer training. And that's where like the Jack Van Berg style of training, because Jack Van Berg, it, it's interesting because Baffert came from the quarter horse world as did Dwayne Lucas. But when you think about Jack Van Berg, and his training technique, a lot aligned with what we saw with Charlie Whittingham, he wasn't afraid to work a horse seven-eighths or a mile. So you really you, you put stamina in these horses and expanded their lungs. And I think a lot of what you're seeing with the bleeders, nowadays it's genetic. Because that's where the whole Lasix off situation is apparent that if we're really going to rule out using Lasix. Because you don't want to breed a, a mare that you have that never bled a day in her life to a stallion that was a profuse bleeder, what what makes any sense in that? But that, but it's also, by the way, the heavy panting is not me. It's Joe. <laughs> he's in my face right now, and he's been heavy panting. As I'm just make sure that people understand, that's not me. Uh, panting, I got it. I thought you, know, you, I thought you were phone. just excited to hear from me. No, the uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> that's it. You got to get him ready for the Iditarod, man. He he looks like he's ready to roll. Oh, oh, he's he's fifty pounds. He's six and a half months old. He's been the perfect pandemic partner. He's awesome. Uh, best thing I ever did. Anyway, but um, the, the one thing I did want to uh, bring up is, for example, when you talk about bleeders, you don't know because you know the horses on Lasix. Unless you get inside info on the horse being a bad bleeder, you don't know. And also, uh, the one thing about, about Lasix, it, it, it really, it's, it's, it's a whole, it, it, it's, there's so many catch-22s with Lasix. And you've got people that are for it's like the blue and red. It's it doesn't the blue and red is not like cats and dogs. Cats and dogs, you remember we used to talk about cats and yeah. dogs. Somebody's you know, they're like cats and dogs. You can't say that anymore. You gotta just say they're blue and red. Yeah. You know, people don't understand you better. But Nick, speaking of handicapping and angles and, and looking at things, you as a handicapper, what is one of your favorite angles to play? Um, you know, again, I, I I'm a big proponent of, you know, the third off the layoff. And in particular, when it's the third off the layoff and you've got a horse that's going from two sprints to a route. And, and I mean a route as in two turns, not like, uh, you know, the Gulfstream one turn, Churchill, Fairgrounds, yeah, whatever. Right, yeah. But I, I've, I've actually done that particular move has been tremendous. And I'll tell you, you know, another angle that I like, um, you know, you talk about horses off of a layoff is – when you have a horse that's making their second career start, um, there was a horse of uh, Ralph Nix, I believe, that won yesterday. Uh, uh, yeah, Superfecto. Liked him first time out. Loved him first time out. Never got out of the gate first time. I, I think it's it's just a different horse, though. I'm going to tell you, it is. Give me. Oh, uh, De Oro. Something. Yes, it was uh, Dance De Oro. Yeah. Paid 43.20. Yeah. And what's interesting, when you think about the pedigree angle, like, for example, with Ralph Nix, I, I couldn't really – I couldn't clue in a, a, a percentage, the formulator percentage, and go, oh, yeah, this horse is definitely going to fire second time out. But knowing his training and knowing his personality, because you remember you had said just a few minutes ago, you'd said, hey, Nick, training mentality, you know, uh, how is it that you get into the minds of these trainers? Well, Ralph Nix does not strike me as a guy with his personality that he's going to have a horse ready to fire first time out. That's, that's, not, his, that's not his motive. So when you got a horse that's by Medallia Oro out of an AP Indy mare, and granted the mare hadn't really thrown any stars, but I thought to myself, you know what? 
He's putting this horse back into a spot. Now, granted, they protected him with that pedigree. They probably should have. But, you know, he's giving the horse a little extra real estate to work with. So, second-time starters, right? Lifetime starters. Third start off the layoff, two sprints to a route. And as far as handicapping maiden races, in particular maiden races that are maiden 50, maiden 40 and below, trying to find the trial maiden, meaning a horse that's raced four, five, six times without winning, that can pass horses. If you can find a maiden who's had multiple tries that can pass horses, you're going to get value on the board. And I mean value 8 to 1, 10 to 1 then those are horses to consider an exotic. So those kind of angles are a few that I actually look for. And I've been a huge proponent of Philly mares um, adding blinkers or removing blinkers. I, I think they have, for whatever reason, the mental psyche of a Philly and a mare versus a colt in particular, a gelding, because I don't think blinker changes do a lot to a gelding unless they get older and you finally take blinkers off. But Phillies, when you put the blinkers on or take the blinkers off after they've been on for a, a set number of times, um, I, I've, I've been very fortunate with some nice scores along the way. What is – let's talk about the blinkers. Uh, with your experience being a trainer, um, I'll never forget, you and I claimed a horse named Sing Because. Yeah. And uh, you actually won a couple races right. with him, right? And I remember when you brought him back, he needed, you know, always, you know, he needed some, I think he won like 13, 14 races in his career. Originally was a Charlie winning and we had some fun with that horse, but I'll never forget one morning you looked at me and you said, I'm going to work him without blinkers. <laughs> it didn't end. Well, well. because if, if you remember, if you remember it, though, I need, to, I need to cut you off, but if you remember that particular horse used to run in a scoop blinker, he ran in an extension blinker. And he, right, he also, right, he also right, ran right. in a, uh, a leather prong. He didn't, he didn't race in a, uh, a runout bit, you know, for horses that lug out, but he did run in a little, but I felt along with my exercise rider, who was a former race rider and you've seen him, you've seen him primarily on Facebook and social media. And, uh, he does, uh, if these shoes could talk, uh, Jimmy Corral and uh, Jimmy yeah. Corral, he rode. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we right. actually, we actually claimed him, and I'm looking him up. He actually, we claimed him in, in, in February of 2003. We managed to win the last race the horse ever ran because he got injured. But if you recall, uh, you mentioned the blinker off move because when we claimed the horse, right, we actually claimed him away from uh, Eddie Truman. And it was Charlie Whittingham's, I think that was the last horse he had ever trained, uh, if I remember correctly. But we claimed him right. for 20, and the day we claimed him, he ran pretty well. The race prior to that, the race yeah. prior to that, yeah. he actually fell in a race. So it's funny because you talk about the mental part of it. So in our conversation, in my conversation with you, I remember we thought, let's try something new. And you can tell the story. Oh, well, if I see, I don't remember the, the, I, the reason I brought up that horse is because, you know, it seemed like I think there was an issue with you not having the right kind of blinker for him. Well, at I the took time. the blinker off in the first work and he blew, he blew the turn. He blew the turn. Yeah. That, yeah. That's what I remember. Yeah. And I think, you know, and, and, and my whole point I was going there is that, you immediately know you immediately said 
that's not a physical issue that he's lugging out. That is a totally. mental issue. And yeah. I need to work on it to get it right. So even though without the blinkers, yeah. the, you did not get the desired result, you learned something from it, adjusted, and actually won with that horse's rest last uh, yeah, win of his career. What's, what's interesting, when you look <clears throat> at his career, it, it wasn't until, what, 1998, and at that point, this horse was five years old. You have to remember, the day he won for us at Hollywood Park in May of 2003, he, wow. he was 10 years old. So, so Yeah, I know. Yeah, so I, I know. I, I, we had some fun. That was, well, that was, was fun. And I, I mean, the, the mistake, you know, the first time we ran him off the claim, I mean, we claimed him for 20. And the first time we ran him off the claim, it was for 50000 and we ended up with a bona fide exercise rider who was the only available jock in the room because I remember vividly it was a Hollywood it was a Friday night at Hollywood Park, and there there were no other riders available because it was a seventh race at that time, so we ended up going with a bona fide exercise rider and he ended up he got beat five lengths didn't run horrible, but at the end of the day, you know, horses if you just take a step back and you don't try to force it with them. Uh, the good ones will, will teach you. Uh, the good ones will talk to you. Um, but that would there's a seat. I'm going with somewhere with this because there was another situation that you and I got to kind of really bond and have a lot of, and we had fun yeah. together with this horse. His name was For slash sure. the price. We, I called you up and Mark Sagalakis at him at Santa Anita. He had just broken his maiden, I think. And I liked him. And I said, Nick, go check him out. Go check him out. See if, uh, if you'll buy or sell him privately. And you did. We bought him for like $7,000. And he had the blinkers on. We got him down to Del Mar. And he works. And he goes out and gallops. And I remember he's all washed out and he runs off with the rider. And he had the blinkers on and everything. And, and, I, and I remember you working with him with the blinkers. And he works 111. And, and, and actually, you took him off. Yeah. You took off the blinkers. And he works 111. Yeah, and I've two. actually got it here. I pulled it up. It was uh, August 21st of 97. He worked 111 and four. He, he had the bullet work that day. And <laughs> yeah, was a so, fast boy. And we're looking at each other like, what yeah, the hey, what yeah. do we got here? And you had the blinkers on and you decided, you know, and I think we were gonna run him first time for us, and he comes up with a bruised foot. Yeah, the foot was an issue, and you know, even toyed first time he ran for us, he got he got blitzed and we, we knew going in that we were but we felt we had it under control. And if I remember that day, I think we ran him in a half plate. And it was obviously, in retrospect, a mistake. I mean, you know, we were fortunate. Well, no, well, wait a minute, Nick. No, don't take it as a mistake because I'll tell you why. That all ties into what you and I are talking about. I remember it was we ran on a Wednesday. On a Monday, yeah. you schooled him. He looked yeah. fantastic. He had this barrel to him. He had the color. He had everything. So now on Tuesday, he comes up with a sore foot. And you and I, I remember you and I sitting there jogging him down the backside on Tuesday. And he's looking okay. You soaked him all night. He said, I'm going to see how he is in the morning. And, you know, he's going to need the race anyway. So we run him the next day. You come into the paddock 
And that horse looks like he yeah, lost Yeah, no, he's pretty pounds. stressed. Yeah. Right. And you and I looked at each other, and I went, we looked at each other like, what happened? You know, Lasix, the foot, the stress. But you did something there that I, I still do this now when I look at horses. You, next time he ran after that, you cut down his right. Lasix from five cc's. And I think you told me you right. gave him two cc's. Yeah. You cut it down. We got him over the foot. And the horse ended up being a really, really – it probably was the neatest horse. Yeah, no, he was fun. He was a lot of fun. I mean, it's funny. We, you know, we talk about uh, the blinker chain. So the blinkers actually came off um, off of that Delmar flop race where he was stressed out with the foot. So we had two races removed, including a run-up at Bay Meadows. But we brought him back to Santa Anita November of that year. And Espinosa rode him with the blinkers off that day. He won and paid like 24-something. He beat Duke um, Dust. And, and Jerry Searing. Really that day? Yeah. 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 It, it, the funny story with that is we, you and I, had an owner named Doc Benura. And, in fact, I talked to – I communicated with him the other day. And Doc showed up in the paddock. And you told me the day before that I got him good, Bruno. I, I remember the call. It was like, Bruno, man, I got this horse good, you know? And he comes into the paddock, and he looks the best that he's ever looked. I'm looking on the board. He's 12 to 1. And I told Bonura, you can bet your money today. His buddy, the insurance agent, Paul, is there with his form. And he's opening up the form, and he looks at me and goes, Bruno, I can't bet your horse. I don't like this horse at all. It's nothing in the form here. So I ignored him. I told Bonura again. Go bet your money and use them with Duke Dust. Because Jerry Searing loved Duke Dust. He trained, right. he trained that horse. Um, That's right. I'm looking up the chart and, right now. And so we're sitting there. We're in the box. And Paul is still going on. Doc, I wouldn't bet this horse. He doesn't show anything on the form. I got so mad, Nick. I snatched that form out of Paul's hands, tore it in half, Walked over, threw it in the trash. I said, Paul, you're going to come in our box at our race, and you're going to tell me about my horse? Yeah. Next time, don't show up. Yeah, but he had the, the, you know, the, the Coyones to show up and, and take a picture with us the, uh, you know, when we won, and we won that race. But that's a great example of, of, of you re- recognizing that the blinkers came off. It got him to relax. You got him over the foot, and you adjusted his laces. That's right there. That yeah, right well, there it, tells yeah, it all, right? exactly. And I, I think the, the, the point above all, and, and what's interesting is that when you go back and look at that win that he had that day with, with Espinosa, it was at a mile and a 16th. Now, you, know, you talk about a horse is off a layoff, off of a freshening or whatnot. So he was going from essentially two real sprints to a route that day when he won. But because of his mental – Self. And one thing about Slash, the price, he was I mean, obviously he was a cheaper horse. And, you know, to kind of preface the conversation we're having, as you we were talking about Will Rogers and when horses relegate themselves to a certain level, they they have kind of learned how to cheat the system. I mean, granted, some of those horses haven't been gifted with talent, so they're kind of up against it anyway, right? But and when you look back at Slash, the right. price – I mean, it took him six races to break his maiden. He eventually broke his maiden for 25. 
at the time in which we went after him, he ran fifth in an eight claimer. And, you know, I mean, granted, we never won, won a championship race with him, but we won, I think we ended up winning three races. But my point being is that we had faith in that horse, but we also were able to get into that horse's head. A, give him confidence. B, yeah. knowing that. Well, well you did. Yeah, but, it's not you we, know, again, you did. You know, I, and I know this sounds crazy, but. You know, if you come to the barn, owners come to the barn, they spend time with their horses, certain horse could care less whether or not you, you give them a carrot or a peppermint or you go in. But for the most part, the one thing I found with horses is synergy. And I, I think it's so important that you have that, that interaction with them and that relationship with them. And that's the unfortunate thing about these trainers that you see nowadays. And you know who I'm talking about, that, that it might have 150, 200, 250 horses. How many horses through the years have those big barns missed out on opportunities in, in, in maybe horse A, B, or C that need that little extra touch and refining? And see, that's where we go back to the Baffert conversation. Baffert doesn't have that issue. All of his horses are right here in California. He's got two strings, and they're vir virtually 45 minutes away from each other. So what he can do, he can do the weeding out process. He can be a, a Nick Saban, so to speak, and he can train these horses. He can get after it. And it's, it's I hate to use the term make or break, but it's, it's Baffert boot camp. And if you, if you can make it through the boot camp phase, you might just be, you might just be the next champion. Right. So, um, you know, I, I just, and that's the problem with the industry today is that people, when they see these trainers that, that run these higher end figures, Look, Baffert had Silver Charm. He had Real Quiet. I mean, they, I mean, combined, there were $35,000 horses, right? So when you think about it, he's gotten to the point now that it's turned into a luxury that he can do what he has to do. And with these other bigger trainers that, that I mentioned, they don't have the, the qualified health. And that's where the whole other issue comes into play. Grooms aren't what they were. Hot walkers even aren't what they were. Exercise rider, foreman, assistant trainers. It's um, it's a pretty broad spectrum, and and that's where the horsemanship. When you talk about a horse like Slash the Price, as an example, um, getting into his head and bringing the most out of him. And you say to yourself, "Well, all he was is a twelve-five claimer." But really, at the end of the day, training horses and owning horses, it's the experience, it's the memory, it's the fact that you had that relationship and it was a success at that level. Who cares at what level it was, really? Well, let me ask you, when you trained, what was the most expensive horse you ever got? Well, I, I actually, uh, this goes back to like when I first trained. And if you remember, uh, ended up winning with my third starter off the claim. It was my third starter ever, uh, Chief Brody. Chief Something Brody. sharp. Yeah. Now, you're Chief right about, you're right about the mayor. Shark. Yeah, okay. <laughs> because the mayor's name was Shark Jaws, and Chief Brody was a half to Tark the Shark. And if you remember my Bob Hess days, Tark the Shark, who was yeah. owned in a partnership with yeah. Jerry Tarkanian and Molaski um, uh, and Sullivan and Partners, and that horse is a head case in his own right. But so Chief Brody was the third starter ahead. I went into a 40 race losing spell where I probably had eight of those that lost by a head or less. And in the midst of that, I claimed a horse for 62,000 off Patty Gallagher. So from 1994, if you remember, I took the break in 98. I took a step back and went to work with Delasse, kept about five or six horses in training. So that was right. the highest price horse that I had during that time. To 2007, I really didn't 
I didn't have anything above that. I think I think we might have claimed one horse for eighty thousand. The owner liked the name, and I think we managed to win one race for the horse. But that was, I mean, that might have been the the highest. It was it was a claimer. I didn't have an opportunity to go to the sales until two thousand seven, and that's when I made the decision to go to work with uh, Southern Equine. And that two thousand seven OBS June sale, uh, we ended up getting uh, behind at the bar. How is it working? Uh, Eric is a good friend of both of ours. He's kind of a sometimes he can get under your skin. How, how is it? What? How was it working? You know, Eric, my friend for life. Um, you know, we've been we've been friends for probably just a bit longer than uh, just a bit longer than you have with me. And I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, I'm I, I, honestly. I, I mean, it's funny how relationships work because if I were to put all three of us in a room. I think I'd probably end up being the referee and having to break you two up, but yeah, you know, it's like who, who has the biggest bark, but I mean, I, I think that's what brings the world together with personalities like we all have. But, but the one thing I think that's really misunderstood about Eric is that from a horsemanship perspective, I think that he, he does have a, a, um, as far as understanding horses, I mean, I, I rank him way up there. Um, I, no, he's yeah, he's, no, he's, he's, he's very he's incredibly you know, intelligent. And I, I think he's it. underrated because people listen to him talk, and he talks in his Cajun dialect. And, but at the end of the day, let me tell you this: you know, his heart's in the right place. Um, you know, there was a time. I, I, no, yeah. Sometimes his mouth is. I mean, not. that's look, man. We've all been in <laughs> positions like that. I, I mean, I remember that time I had you by the throat at Hollywood Park that day. So, in front of my in-laws, so, you know, it was like their <laughs> eyes got bigger than plums. But, but the reality is, I think with Eric, the thing that frustrates me a little bit about all of that, because you remember we got hit in 2007-8 with the, uh, with the market fall and the crash. And that was right about the time that Southern Equine was actually taking their big step. And we were able to get through it. But then with the synthetic tracks here, you know, you talk about trainers and, and, and those that understand a surface and understanding how their horses can handle it. Eric had, had trouble with the synthetic track out here. And if you remember the, the debutante winner, yeah, huh. right. A lot so, of guys but, did. But the yeah. issue there is, is that if you can't audible your training, right? I mean, look, it, it virtually ruined Swiss Yodler's career as a stallion. And people can look at you and laugh and go, Swiss Yodler, he was terrible. At the time, he was. Yeah, no, he, he was given, fantastic. I mean, down. unusual heat. On the yeah. other hand, the the advent of synthetic tracks probably a big part of what led to his being what he was because he had a chance, you know. So, but going back to Eric, I mean, it. Yeah. I just. Yeah. What could have been, but what was? I mean, we won multiple Grade Ones together, and I think at the uh, end of the day, it's been a uh, it's been a tremendous experience because i mean virtually between champagne to oro uh misueno santa teresita you know at the time we salute the sarge yeah. salute the sarge and, yeah so with eric it's it, a lot of it's been experience and um and i'd have to say because of our friendship there were certain aspects of the business end of it that suffered um because of our friendship and our at the end of the day it was uh I have no regrets. I mean, I, obviously, 
Your parties were the best, though. Yeah, well, you and Eric's you can, parties. You can were thank the best. him for the better party because Eric is definitely as far as party plan. If you ever want to plan a party, call Eric; he'll get you hooked up. So, yeah, he, uh, <laughs> he's got his vocation well, you know, in case he it, retires it's, it's from right. Say that you know because but, it's been uh, announced recently that you know he's going to take a step back. Southern Equine uh, recently hired uh, Robertino Diodoro. Um, so Eric officially, unofficially, unofficially, officially is taking a step back out of training right now. So, so we should look forward to, to the Eric Dio, uh, catering and party, well, uh, business showing up in Saratoga. Well, let me just say one thing that he did. I got, I got to share with this with everybody. This, he did this a couple of years ago at Saratoga. This is to give you an idea how Eric is. And Eric's a dear friend of mine. I just love to give it to him because he gets all bent up, right? You did the same thing. You know how to get him started. So I had just gotten my new truck, and I'm on Oklahoma clocking. And Eric is circling like a right. buzzer around my truck, right? And he comes over, and he goes, that's your truck? I said, yeah. How the heck you got a $60,000 truck? How the hell did you do that? You know, in, in, his, in his thing. And I told him, you know, I had a big score at Churchill, you know. And so next thing I know, I'm on, I'm on the main track clocking after the break. And here comes Eric in his cart. And he stops in front of the clockers. And he's standing down there. You know, I, I, you, you don't even been only Saratoga once. He would stand in front of the clockers on the right. apron and stare at them. You can picture Eric. And he goes, you guys are doing it all wrong, he yells out to the clockers. And they're all there, the right. all 10 of them, whatever, they hang out together. And he's like, you know, what do you drive? And one of the guys yells at what he drives. He goes, how the hell you drive a $10,000 car and Bruno's driving a $60,000 car? You guys ain't doing uh, something right. Well, <laughs> that that yeah, is Eric yeah. in a nutshell right there. Yeah. I died because I'm like, no, yeah, but why he's, would you, you know, do thing, that? He's very, you know? he's, he's very underrated. And I think that people – People are very judgmental, and look, I, I think we all are guilty of it in life, but that just goes back to the whole training experience. I, I found it difficult when I would work with certain trainers where they would pigeonhole horses, and essentially they wouldn't give them that chance. The one thing I will say is that in reference to Eric, and he is a trainer, I mean, granted, you know, there's an argument that, look, he had high dollar horses and, you know, Marino gave him ample opportunity. And I, I think if you really sat down and you looked at statistics for what he was able to accomplish. And if we go back to the original plan of what we had as Southern equine with the high dollar mares, because we had an incredible broodmare band at that time, but with, with the, with the economy blip that we had um, and it just so happened that it was just after I signed on with them in November of 2007, it was, it was a bit of a struggle because there were mares that we had to let go that ordinarily we would like to have kept, but that's what kept the business afloat and kept it moving forward. But like anything else, if you don't continuously go to these sales year in and year out, and you're not buying stock, or, and you also have to remember that Marino bought into Bodemeister before the Derby that year with Zion. And with that came the breeding aspect of it. There was a commitment involved. 
I think you and I both know where Bodie Meister is now. He's, he's not standing here anymore. So when mm-hmm. you commit yourself to a sire that doesn't necessarily make it, and you committed some of your, your mares and your higher-end mares to them, boy, that puts a delay and lapse into your business and, and hurts your business model. So um, that's... Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I, I, I understand because I've, I've had five mares and one of them died. Yeah. Another one I had to, we had to give away. And, you know, we had one mare that was really well-bred. I thought she was going to be my mess mare. And I keep getting right. horses with hawk issues. Um, you know, but you brought up something. And I know we're going to this is going to be a phenomenal when it's all put together. I think people are going to love it because we're talking about yeah. a lot of different parts of this industry. You just brought up about stallions. Are we giving up? And I say we very loosely. Are we giving up as an industry on stallions? Yeah, I, I think it's become. Quickly? I think it's just become too commercial. Um, I, I think if you were to turn the clock back and you look at full crops, and you look at the size of those full crops, and <clears throat> I find it interesting the stats, the, the statistics that are out there. If you look at the conglomerate of mares that are bred to a in particular stallions, you know, the jockey club came out over the last, what, six months and saying that they were going to limit the amount of uh, mares that could breed to X stallions. I think that's, that's been a big part of it because it's been a mass um, number. You know, if you look at, if I remember correctly, uncle Mo, like in his first year, I think he might've bred 210 mares. Well, let me tell you, that gives you quite a distinct advantage over the neighbor. And so when you say giving up on stallions too soon, I mean, we, we saw Daredevil, for example. Um, what, what McPeak did with that, that filly over the weekend um, in, winning, in, in winning the fantasy. Daredevil, if you look at his statistics, I, I'm, I'm shocked. And, I, and like being at the two-year-old training sales, I'm like, wow, did they? What happened here? So, yeah, you're right. They, they do, but I think it's because they have to because the money – that they could get today versus the money, which might be tomorrow. And I say might, they, they have to take the bird in the hand. They can't take the two in the bush because it's, it's so commercialized now. It's not what it was. Right. And, and that's the insanity of it. Yeah. You and I are bloodstock agents, as, you know, as well. You do it for more, more than a, than a, than a living than I do. Um, but when you go to the sales and mm-hmm. let's say you want to breed a horse and you want to mm-hmm. breed to Bodie Meister. He's hot this year. Do we let's have to use Bodie Meister? Do we have He's to use Bodie Meister? He's done okay. <laughs> no, uh, well, I'm trying to come up with a name. Well, uh, you know, let, let's just use okay. a first year stallion like Orb, okay? You go to Orb, right? And he has a really good first year. So let's say yeah. I'm going to go look at all the Orbs the second year around. By the time you breed Orb, you're married to Orb. The second year, him be a standing a stallion. You're not going to get a foal that's ready to be commercial until the, uh, really the fourth year of a stallion year. You, you're not going to get, you know, but it's going to take a year to be born. And then another, if you right. sell them as a yearling, that's two years from now. So now you, what all that time has gone by, if people don't like Orb anymore, you're screwed. You might have gone commercial, but now you're screwed because two years the, down the road, the he's, no, he's not of, being sought after. Well, it's like anything else. It's, it's nowadays because what's happening 
is all these guys are coming up with these first-year stallions. Yeah. They're putting all the top mayors with these first-year stallions. They're making them look good. So now all of a sudden, if those horses, you know, and everybody's buying them, and then they get off, and then they get on to the next, you know, it's like a shell game. It's become to where I'm going to put the best mares with all these first-year stallions. So, you know, you either buy them now at what we want to sell them to you, or if you're going to take your chance and buy them later, you may not be able to, you right. know, sell them or do whatever you want yeah. to do with your fault. And that's what it is. That's what the bottom line is. I got an always street. Yeah, I saw your show. I, I thought that you was You know, fantastic. I was able, I did some work for Winston. Yeah. You know, I'm hoping the whole Cole turns out okay. He's going to go to the sales. Um, it's the last fall out of that mare who I'm going to retire. She's unbridled. Sky Classic. She's a big, good, right. strong-looking colt. Yeah. I'm hoping we double and triple our money. And that's it. You know, you never know. But it's very hard now as a breeder to be able to go to these first-year stallions because sometimes, you know, and if you don't go to them right away, and, you know, like yeah, Painter, and, and, Painter I think he's become I, a I really good stallion. He's, the one thing about Painter is that he's, he's a versatile stallion. Horse can run turf. And factor are those that actually prefer the painters on turf and you know i've come to find that they're i think painters as a general rule are sounder than the average stallion so right yeah yeah they're not big they're they're very racy they're compact like he was you know and and the one thing about him is that he still doesn't get the respect that some first year stallion yeah, I'll give you a great example. I don't believe American Pharaoh you know, has been that uh, great. You think it's a little, little premature to call that up, or why would you say that? No. Well, I, I'm calling it out because he hasn't developed any really, really good colts yeah. or on the dirt. He's been all turf. Yeah. You know, and, and why is that? Why is some of these – like Orb. Orb never ran on the grass, but he's a better grass, well, side, grass stallion. Than he is a, a dirt stallion. I think that, I think reality is, I mean, of the conversation of Orb versus Painter, for me, it's a slam dunk. I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't consider breeding. Um, and, and knowing the mares that he got. Now, as far as American Pharaoh, they, they might, might end up being more turfy in the end. And does that mean he's not a success? The one thing you have to say, though, is that American Pharaoh got what? He got top-tier mares. I mean, he didn't get any – you know, for me, when you're dying you're, yeah. and, and you're buying horses to sale, I mean, we're obviously looking more from a maternal standpoint of uh, their productivity and, and durability, right? But when you talk about stallions, like I mentioned unusual heat earlier, unusual heat time and time again moved his mares up. And – that's where I think that when you're buying in a commercial market or you're buying the race, that's one thing that people really need to, to, to consider more. So as far as, man, this mare didn't do a whole lot, but she bred of this stallion and look what that foal did. So where did it come from? Well, the mare essentially was helped by the stallion and the stallion's durability. And you come back to, you come back to, and I, I think people put that's a lot a, of credit to point. the mother. That's a very and, good point. And, and granted, as you should. I'm not telling you that it should be uh, 70-30 stallion, but I think you need to give a little more credit. And when you're doing your research on who to breed to 
it's hard on the first-year Stallions because you don't know what they're going to do. You don't know what Always Dreaming is going to produce. I mean, you know what he did on the track, and you liked him enough on the track. But right. I, it's, it's a very – Well, I, I, can tell you, I can tell you specifically why I went to Always Dreaming. Because I have a gargantuan, okay. unbridled, Sky Classic mare. Right. She's by Sky Classic out of an unbridled mare. And she delivers gigantic foals. So, but when she does that, she has torn herself apart inside, given foaling them, where we've had to give her break, you know, every couple of years until I changed it up and I started going to smaller, yep. more compact, more lighter stallions. Uh, I went to race day. I went to uh, uh, Palace. I went to... Um, uh, I went to um, uh, and always dreaming because they're smaller, lighter. They're not the big, heavy, heavy horses that you get. I, I went to Jimmy Creed with, with, with her and I got a beautiful colt, but he was so heavy yeah. and top heavy that basically he right. ended up bowing a 10. Then he got right. hurt. He could really run. He was gigantic, though. So a lot of the times, a lot of people don't think that they don't think like that. Um, I will say this. I, I wanted to ask you, you know, before we wrap it up, American Pharaoh, is he unbridled song? And follow me on my thought. Why? I thought unbridled son, unbridled song, was, being by unbridled, was not a horse that you take to the two-year-old training sales or you start shoving as a baby at January of their two-year-old season to get him to March, April, or May sales. And even though they were, he was freakishly fast and freakishly talented and his horses were all very, very athletic animals, did, does that, I thought that Unbridled Song's fragility and, and, and being frail was a product of people running to push them oh, to run not, them too early in their career because of their athletic prowess. Is that, that the same you know, thing? The one thing you have to remember, American Pharaohs by Pioneer of the Nile. And being a grandson of Empire Maker, I, I you know, I, I never got the impression that Pioneer of the Nile was. Um, I, I, do, I do think at the end of the day, when you think of American Pharaoh, um, the one thing that struck me more about him that I preferred over, say, for example, in Bridal Song was his balance. I, I thought he was a better balanced individual, you know, as far as, as far as fragility is concerned. I mean, the verdicts on this, you know, the verdicts out on a bridal song. I mean, he was turned down as a two-year-old training because he had a chip in the knee, but you know, when you look at American Pharaoh, you know, you put the percentages out there. Are you with me today? His progeny, mm -hmm. they are roughly winning on dirt at 11%. Okay, his turf horses, he's winning at 16 percent. So in the All-State consideration, he's had a synthetic winner, uh, hasn't had a grade one winner yet, but he's had three graded stakes wins. So when you think about his physical makeup, he never had an opportunity to try the grass. But why would he? He was a triple crown winner. But when you think about he, he reminds me a lot of that pioneer of the Nile line. He doesn't I don't see the Yankee gentleman in him. In fact, I got called out on, on Twitter and social media and by Mr. Zayat, with all due respect, when I picked his pedigree apart. Because before American Pharaoh ever raced, or let's just say after his second career start, 
when he won. I pulled up his pedigree. I think he had one graded stake winner, one G or G1 on the whole pedigree page. And in fact, when you go to equine line and printed it out, generally when you have a stallion that, you know, or a horse that has a deep pedigree, they might have two or three pages. It was one page. He was out of a Yankee gentleman mare. So when you, when you kind of throw it out there and say, hey, is American Pharaoh the next unbridled song? Are they going to be fragile? I don't know about the fragility part of it, but I will say this. I think that thus far they've thrived on the grass. And I think that at the end of the day, American Pharaoh was just a freak. That's basically what he was. So. Yeah, he was. He was. I'll tell you, you know, another horse that was like that was Officer, who my dear friend Rudy Del Judas bought, got him and, and, and sold him at Barrett's to Baffert for 700000 mm-hmm. But Officer mm-hmm. on the dam side yeah. was very light by St. Alan's Shadow. And he also was, and it's interesting how officers, I, I always, when I find officer mares, right. I found them to be grass horses. Yep. They end up, they end up being okay on the grass. Um, even though he had a lot of speed, the Pope pedigree angle is a really interesting, I believe in the pedigree being uh, what they're bred to be rather I, than I, what I they did on the track. That. I mean, you also have to remember, you know, you had officer and American Pharaoh who were trained by the same guy. And thank you. Uh, if you get, if you, if you give a horse. Yeah. No. Did, did, wait, did you get it? You, you got, you got an audience. Over um, there? I, I think that if you get a like, guy hey, like Baffert, hey. you tell him, Hey Bob, I got this horse. Uh, he's by Pine of the Nile. Uh, he's a little turfy. He's not going to be that excited about it, but I mean, you know, this is the conversation that like Eric Gill and I, thank you. Uh, had the other day. You wouldn't believe it, man. I, <laughs> guy came to, to we have live people on the stand we have live people um <laughs> yeah there oh you i can just Ura. picture you with a drink um, in your jacuzzi the doing conversation the show I had right with Gio yeah. in reference to i mean the first time american <laughs> fair ever worked on the farm he was he was a freak and i think that from a pedigree standpoint you yeah. potentially could be onto something because if you think about the mares they bred to American Pharaoh, and let's just even compare them to, I'm just going to throw Jimmy Creed out there, okay? Because if you look at the average earnings index, say, for example, on Jimmy Creed, his average earnings index is actually above par from what you see. And you'd say, well, does that mean if you bred the same mares you bred, American, bred to American Pharaoh that you could breed them to Jimmy Creed? You might get a... You don't know. See, now the fact that the verdict is out, but look, when you got a triple crown winner, yeah, I mean, who yeah. wouldn't want to breed you a triple crown winner? A horse like American Pharaoh, who reportedly his only issue he ever had was a foot, um, which, you know, I mean. Let's, let's just, before we go, I want to, uh, the one thing about American Pharaoh that was interesting he, I love the kind of horse that has a very long cannon bone in the hind. Right. The long cannon bone in the hide with a higher hawk set. Now, if people would understand, some people may be going, what's he talking about? The yeah. hind legs, the hawk is the big knee in the back on a horse. I don't like to see that knee low on that horse's back. I like to see that, uh, that knee up high. And the way what happens, it, 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 it accentuate, ex- accentuates the stride to be longer yeah. because of the way they're built. It's almost like their hind end is on stilts. 
And I remember one time somebody saying, well, American Pharaoh kind of camps out right. behind, meaning the hawks are stick out mm -hmm. from behind. He's a little bit different behind than a lot of horses. And I think, I don't know if you ever really looked at him and ripped him, you know, ripped him apart yeah. uh, 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 confirmation-wise, but that higher hawk set behind caused him to ha have elongate that stride. Now, that stride may be more of a router stride than a yeah. sprinter stride. Sprinters seem to have lower hawks behind which, you know, which, which uh, promotes more speed. But if you looked at him, he's the kind of horse I like to buy that has that long, lean look with those hawks up high. Now, the, those hawks could be the reason of the way he's built that are allowing him to be more of a turf-type producer than a dirt producer because it creates a if you don't have the gasket behind to go with those hops yeah, yeah. then you're uh, going to have a horse that's probably going to enjoy we go back better. to the conversation we had in reference to turf horses and how they may be able to stay sounder uh being on the grass and and i think that i can assure you that if you looked at the i guess if you looked at the roster of broodmares that bred to american pharaoh I, I don't think guys that are guys are taking their turf horses, turf mares, and saying, "Ooh, I'm going to breed to American Pharaoh." I think that in all actuality, I think they're going to try and breed a dirt champion because that's what everybody wants. So I think, though, from the a statistical standpoint, right. in order for the American Pharaohs to run early, which um, I think, all in all, with his two year olds. Uh, he's 17%. He's had 23 winners as two-year-olds. Uh, he's 13% with first-time starters. Um, I think if you look at the successes of the horses that he's had as young horses, it's been on the grass. So that's probably what's allowed them to get into those races early on because of what you're saying. Um, I, I can't, I'm not going to say to you, yeah, Bruno, mm -hmm. you're right, that mm -hmm. you know, the American pharaohs might be fr fragile like what we saw with the Unbridled Song. Um, the unfortunate thing about Unbridled Song, uh, his horses were pure dirt horses, pure. Um, not saying that Unbridled Song with a foal could ever run on turf, because they probably could, because I actually, as a sire, I, I, as much as I liked him as a sire, I, I loved him as a broodmare sire when you can find him. Yeah. He was phenomenal. I mean, Unbridled Song... What's yeah. interesting on Bridal Song, yeah. he was on Bridal Song, he's out of a Carol mare, Trolley Song. Now, and I'll leave you all with this about breeding. I ran into one of the owners of California Chrome, mm -hmm. and it was during the Belmont when he was going for the Triple Crown. And I said to him, I said to him, Are you, were you uh, excited about the mating with Lucky Pulpit? because of the lucky pulpit uh, uh, connection to right. Unbridled Song. And he looked at me like I had three heads. Lucky Pulpit's mayor is Lucky Soph, S-O-P-H. She know. was a half-sister right. to Trolley Song, the dam of Unbridled Song. And what's interesting there is California Chrome looked like Unbridled Song. He looked like a will-take-charge. He looked like one of those horses 
with the blaze and all the white. And I always found that to be very interesting that his owner didn't even know that he bred to a horse that was, you know, out of a sister to Unbridled Song. You know, then you tie in, you know, it's funny because for me, when I like Unbridled Song as a broodmare sire, uh, when you look at statistics, uh, that's probably his lowest percentage with turf types. In fact, his highest was horses on, on synthetics. But as a sire, um, uh, the parallels for me with the Unbridled Song and American Pharaoh, it's tough for me to find that parallel. But if you feel like in your mind that you don't trust the American Pharaohs to stay sound because of the way he was made, whether he was cowhawked or whatnot, um, I, I think I would say that the, the only reason that he's had the precocity are in the primary basis is because of the turf horses. That's that's what it is. So, yeah. well, my my whole point with Unbridled Song was merely based on the the fragility being that he was being asked to do yeah. something too well, early, I mean, too soon in his you career. Know, as a like racehorse, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, when they get these American pharaohs, they want to hurry to get them to the to these to these two year old in training sales, which I think some of them for some horses are really like a, well, a, a, a they're, um, they're, they're a boot camp for horses that are ha- not ready to, to be brainstorm a, a little bit here as far as how many American pharaohs has Baffert started thus far. Which is crazy, because if uh, I, I don't American, think he has that many pharaoh knowing what he had done and right. just like, you know, for example, with, with, with into mischief, you know, when you think of, Hey, if I've got a really good into mischief, I try to go back to the source. I mean, who trained the horse? Because if I feel like I've got a horse that's got great potential, I want to find a foal by that stallion that the trainer trained to try and mimic it the best of my abilities. Right. Try to keep it simple. And I think that's, you know, we, we've kind of tied a lot of things in on mm-hmm. the show, but I think as a handicapper, I think as a horseman, um, I think as a gambler, I think the it's good to be diverse, but at the same time, it's it's I think it's ultra important to keep things simple. Know the basis of your handicapping when you're evaluating a horse. Know what know what your base is. Know what you're looking for. You mentioned the high hawk set. You like that. A lot of guys don't. You know, we talked about Eric Gio. Eric Gio doesn't like the high hawk set, but that's that's just the way we're wired, and that's what makes the world go round and round. Nick, Absolutely. we could go on all day talking like this. It's a great conversation. I loved it. I want to try to do this more often with you. Uh, yeah, maybe great. make it a hindsight monthly kind of thing, you know, like we used to do in the digest. Uh, we love to do that. Before I let you go, please tell people if they need to get a hold of you. For well, I, I am on social media. That you, you got going right now. Me tell there them how to get hindsight, a hold of you. H-I-N-E-S-I-T-E. You could also email me. Hindsight, H-I-N-E-S-I-T-E-6-7, the number 67 at gmail.com. And uh, you can feel free to call me, uh, 310-714-7434. And uh, available most of the day. Just try not to call me after I'm gone to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I've taken enough of your time, and we've really enjoyed this, Nick. This has been awesome. I will have this posted, and, um, and uh, I think people are going to really enjoy this. I want to thank everybody for joining us. 
Uh, Nick Hines is fantastic. Thanks to Nick. And you can always send me suggestions on who to get on our podcast. And you can write me at Bruno at RacingWithBruno.com. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and talk to you soon.